praise God. First Timothy chapter 2. And we begin reading with verse number 1. First Timothy 2 and verse 1. I exhort therefore that what? Let's try that again. I exhort therefore that what? First of all. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. I exhort, therefore, that first of all. First of all. Top priority. Most important obligation. Greatest responsibility. First thing on our list to get accomplished each day ought to be prayer. We're going to continue this lesson on the power of prayer. Would you put your Bibles down? Would you lift your hands and lift your voices? Let's ask the Lord to help us today, everybody. Let's talk to the Lord together right now. Could we just worship him one more time, everybody? Let's praise the Lord together. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Amen. We started last week talking about this subject of prayer. And we talked about how God wants it to be first. The first obligation, the first responsibility. This ought to be our first act. We talked about the danger of waiting until the end of the day to talk to the Lord because you've already fought your battles. You've already faced your demons. But if you'll start off the day 
if you'll start your day with a word of prayer. And, and let, me, let me just say this, and I'll, I'll say it again, I'm sure, later uh, at some point before we finish this entire lesson. But I want you to know that the greatest success in prayer is not how long you pray or how loud you pray. The greatest success in prayer is just to keep praying. It's consistency in prayer. That's the important thing. And, and, and again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this is one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of these prayer clocks. I don't know if you've seen them. It was pretty popular some years back, but they had a, had a clock and it was divided up into 12 sections. And it said, spend five minutes on this and five minutes on this and five minutes on this. And when you're through, then, then you've, I guess it wasn't 12 sections, but anyhow, you spent 60 minutes. So whatever that, my math's not working too great here this morning, but whatever. Um, I guess five times 12 is 60. So my math's not working great. But anyhow, so, but that's what it would do, but the problem is I, I think too many people just became clock watchers, yeah. and they weren't really praying. Right. They were more focused on, okay, well, I've only been three and a half minutes. So i got to do this a little bit more, and it wasn't about content, and it wasn't about being effectual in your prayer, Amen. and so I, I'm going to tell you. And I've, I mean, I've heard people make statements, if you don't pray an hour a day, you can't be saved. You don't, whatever. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I just think, I think we ought to pray. And, and however long that is. If, if the best you can do and be consistent is, is 10 minutes, then just pray your 10 minutes. But be consistent with it. What I've found is if you'll start out being consistent with 10, it won't take long and it'll spread into 15. And then it'll become 20. And you'll actually be spending more time than what you thought. But the key is to be consistent in your prayer. Now this is not, this is supposed to be review right now. This is not review, but it's what I'm feeling. So I'm going to say it anyhow. Praise God. Um, prayer has got to become more important to us than anything. I'm, I'm going to tell you, church, I, I do believe in the old-time standards of holiness. You know that. But I've seen too many churches that were more focused on the outward standard than they were on prayer. They looked the part on the outside, but like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, inwardly, they were full of dead men's bones. And I'm going to tell you more important, and I'm not discounting separation, but more important than separation is prayer. I believe in outreach, but more important than outreach is prayer. There is nothing more important to us as children of God than prayer. 
That's it. It's not an option. It's a mandate. It's a commandment. I'm not going to say that you can't be saved if you don't pray an hour a day, but I will say you can't be saved if you don't pray. I actually read a denominal preacher uh, some years ago made a statement. He said, if I have to choose between prayer and Bible reading, I'm going to read my Bible. He said, because it's more important what God says to me than it is what I say to God. Well, I understand that because, to be quite honest, God's probably not saying much to him in prayer. <laughs> um, but the fact is that when I pray, I can also hear the voice of God. In fact, prayer ought to be a communication, and, and we'll get into, into the, the mechanics of prayer later. But, but this is a great mistake that many people make, is they just give God their list, and they never take time to listen for His response. Well, I, I made the statement last week, hell is not afraid of a big church. Doesn't intimidate the devil at all. Hell is not afraid of a wealthy church. Now, I said hell is not afraid of a worshiping church. I will give you this caveat. Uh, our worship does impact hell. I, I heard many years ago a story. Um, a preacher was telling how that he had gotten a call from someone who identified themselves as a witch and said that that they were coming to his church. In fact, if I remember the story correctly, they made a statement and said that we, said, said to him that you people are the only ones that we cannot conquer and that only if you're right. But they determined that this individual determined to come to the service that night and try to cast a spell on the preacher. And, and as he told the story, he said, what happened that night is the song leader got up and started singing and said there was this one individual that never worshipped. They, they just, they were always very reserved and quiet. But that night, they turned loose and started dancing and shouting and kept moving as they were doing it, ended up right beside that witch. Without knowing that that's who this person was. Stood there and just worshipped and danced and shouted. Until the witch finally just grabbed their things and left. 
I am telling you, our worship does have an impact on hell. But I'm going to tell you, nothing affects hell or heaven or earth like prayer. Somebody once said, prayer changes things. And I heard a man come along and say, well, that's not entirely accurate. Prayer changes people. And people change things. Well, again, I don't expect you to run the aisles. But an amen once in a while would be nice. In fact, more than once in a while. We talked about what prayer does. Prayer is how we become led by the Spirit. And we have to be led by the Spirit to be a son of God. Prayer is how we make our requests known to God. Prayer is how the lost are saved. But what we talked about last week, we talked about Prayer that worked. Not just praying, but being effective or effectual is the word the scripture uses in our prayer. And in fact, we took that that scripture that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we broke that down and looked at it as to what it really means. And I... I gave you the Riggin Amplified translation. Which says the powerfully mighty and efficient prayer. Coming from the extreme passion and earnest zeal. Of a man who conforms to God's standard of virtue and morality. Has forceful ability to sufficiently prevail. Now that's the kind of prayer I want to have. That's the kind of prayer life I want. It is possible. But we've got to learn some things about prayer. We've got to learn how to pray. Prayer is not just saying, I love you Jesus, I love you Jesus, I love you Jesus. Thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus. Move, Lord, move, Lord, move, Lord. Oh, God, stir. That's not really prayer. Jesus warned against vain repetition. And I'm afraid too many apostolics, that's what their prayer life is. is just time filled with vain repetition. And so we went to the book of Daniel. And you can go ahead and put Daniel 9.19 on the wall. This is our focus. This is where we learn how to pray. Learn from a man who knew how to do it. A man who was effectual. A man whose prayer changed kingdoms. Shut the mouths of lions.
I think he could teach us how to pray. So Daniel 9.19 says this. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. Oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So in the first part of this verse, there are four steps to successful prayer. And we started talking about those last week. First of all, O oh Lord, hear. This is the process of getting God's attention. I pointed out to you that you can't get God's attention if you don't give Him yours. If you're just looking around, and I do, you know, I, I walk and pray, and I sometimes watch and pray. But, but if you get too focused on everything else, you're not really giving God your attention. And that's why there are times when it is important that you bury your face. There are some times that's necessary. That's how you spiritually enter into your closet. You get into a place where you are not distracted. Remove distractions. I heard a preacher say several years ago, he said when he starts to pray, he keeps a notepad. Because he said, as sure as he starts making some progress in prayer, the devil's going to remind him, oh yeah, you got to pay this bill. Oh yeah, you were supposed to call so-and-so. Oh yeah, you forgot about this. He said, so I'll just keep a little notepad and I'll say, thank you, devil. I'll take care of it when I get through. Glad you reminded me. But I'm not going to do it right now. i got more important things to take care of. Well, hallelujah. So give God your attention so that you may gain His attention. The second thing that Daniel said was, O oh Lord, forgive. And I pointed out this is the process of finding God's favor because sin separates us from God. And we can't find his favor if there's sin in our hearts. We've got to repent. We've got to ask God to forgive us. I don't think there is a day that passes that I don't pray the words of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. Now that's not a vain repetition to me. Though I say it every day. It's not in vain. Because I mean it with all of my heart. I want God to create a clean heart in me. I want God to renew a right spirit within me. There are just some of the psalms that really are a part of my everyday prayer. They are. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and keep the door of my lips. That's something I pray every day because the Bible says the tongue can no man tame. 
That's what the scripture says. Scripture says you're not able to control it. So you know what we need? We need God to set a guard there. Because he can control it. He taught us that when he let us speak in tongues. He can control it. And so, so I pray that. I pray let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I, I just I pray that every day. Because I want what I say and what I think about to be pleasing in God's sight. We've got to find God's favor. We've got to find God's favor. You know, I've said many times, and, and I know I'm still in the review right here, but we're about to get into some new area in, in just a moment. But, but I, I, I've said this many times. We're familiar with, with 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will... Forgive their sin and heal their land. Um, the problem is, most of the time, we're not seeking God's face. We're seeking God's hands. Now think about what I just said. We're seeking His hands because His hands give to us. So we seek His hands. But he said, I want you to seek my face. If you'll seek his face, I want to tell you, his hands will follow his face. Whichever way his face turns, his hands are going to go that direction. His blessings follow his favor. So instead of asking for God's blessings, seek God's favor. If you'll find his favor, you'll receive his blessings. Now, while we're talking about, about getting a clean heart and, and the prayer of Daniel was, Oh Lord, forgive, a prayer of repentance. I do want to just interject this today. And, and this is where I, I was afraid it would just take me too long to get too far into all of this. But, but... But let me tell you that sometimes finding forgiveness requires more than just asking God for it. Let me say that again. Sometimes finding forgiveness requires more than just asking God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 23 and 24. Brother Larson read for me. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. You know, this is, this is an important principle. A number of years ago, I was in a situation where I had counseled someone, and there was some strife there. 
um, the individual did not feel like it was their fault, and from what I understood, they were correct. It wasn't. But I still counseled them, just go and apologize. Just go and apologize. It's just better for you to just take the blame, say you're sorry, and get this right. And so I, I sent a text to the other individual. I told him, I said, I want you to get in touch with them. I want you to go make things right. So I sent a text to the other individual. I said, they're coming to see you. I've, I've encouraged them to come to see you. I want you to know I've asked them to come see you. And the person wrote back to me, I don't want to see them. They don't need to apologize to me. They just need to repent to God. Well, my friends, there's a problem with that. Because the Bible says to make it right with your brother first. That's scripture. Before you go to God, you go to your brother. Well, leave your gift at the altar. Now, now read, read verse 23 again. Because I want you to catch what this says. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. That you have aught against your brother. That's not what it says. You go to the altar and realize, hey, they've got something against me. Right. You may say, well, I've got nothing against them. Doesn't matter. Here's the thing, church. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. The responsibility is yours to make it right. Whether you are at fault or not, it's your job to make it right. Well, hallelujah. I had, a number of years ago, a man did me very, very wrong. And I tried to deal with him, and it just got worse. And he became very, um, I don't know that arrogant was the word, but but um, really started being demeaning and attacking me for even approaching it. And, and I, 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 got, I got so frustrated, and it got to the point that, if I was at a meeting and saw him there, I would just avoid him because I didn't want to go through all that. And one day it dawned on me, you know, this is not the right approach. I shouldn't be avoiding my brother. Now, I know he did me wrong. And I know he compounded it when I tried to approach him. But it's still my obligation to make it right. So you know what I did? I went to him again. This time, not to confront him over what he did. But this time, to look him in the eye and say, Brother, forgive me. Now you know, he hugged me and said, Oh, you're forgiven. Never once apologized to me. But at that point, it didn't matter to me. 
because all was well in my heart. And then when I would see him at meetings, I didn't have to avoid him. Well, again, I don't expect you to run the aisles this morning. But this is so true. If we're going to have an effectual prayer life, one of the things we've got to do, we've got to get to this place of forgiveness. In fact, Mark eleven twenty six. listen to this. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now I'm going to tell you, that's one of the strongest statements in all the Word of God. Because I know that the Bible says there's only one sin that is unpardonable. But I do want you to see what else it says. The Bible says if you don't forgive, then God will quit forgiving you. And at that point, it's not about the sin you committed being unpardonable. It's about you living in an unpardonable lifestyle. I had a man come to me many years ago. um, Fairly new in the church. And a visitor walked in the door. And this new convert came to me. It was pre-service prayer. And he came to me and he said, I, I, I need to talk to you. Well, as most of you are aware, I, I, don't, I don't counsel before church. I don't think it's good. Number one, it, it, it prohibits me from having a clear mind when I step behind the pulpit. If, if you're going to tell me all these problems, that's what's going to be on my mind when I get to the pulpit. And then it's hard sometimes to distinguish, is God wanting me to deal with this? or? And even if it's not hard to distinguish, If God does want me to, and I know it's God, I feel inhibited because I know you're going to think I'm just addressing your problem. So I just don't counsel before church. I just don't. If you need to talk to me, hang on till church is over. But please don't come and counsel before church. But in this situation, he was a new convert. I could tell he was perturbed. He was upset. And so I stepped into the office. And he started telling me, this man that just came in, he did some things to me. He said, I want to know something. Do I have to forgive him? And my response shocked him because he was braced. He was ready to have a major discussion with me right then and plead his cause. Because this man had really crossed a line. In fact, since none of you know who this is or where this happened, if I'm not mistaken, the man had, had actually either attempted um, 
maybe I can say it this way, had either flirted with his wife or it had gone further than that. That's a pretty serious offense. And so here is this new convert saying, do I have to forgive him? And boy, he was ready. I think he already had the speech written in his mind. And I just looked at him and I said, no, you don't. And it caught him totally off guard. He was not expecting that. And his mouth dropped open and his eyes got big. He, he was expecting me to say, yes, you do. And I said, no, you don't. And he looked at me and I said, you don't as long as you're never going to need forgiveness for anything yourself. Because Jesus said, if you don't forgive, your father will not forgive you. So if you think you're going to live from this moment forward a perfect life and never need forgiveness, then no, you don't have to forgive him. But I think both of us knew he was not going to walk out of that office and never need forgiveness again. So if we are going to reach this point in our prayer life of, oh, Lord, forgive, we've got to be willing to say to ourselves, forgive. We're going to have to let go of all the hurts, of all the wrongs, Church, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm being transparent with you today. When I tell you, I've been, I've been on the other side of having been wronged. Deeply, deeply wronged. I have fought bitterness. I'm just being honest with you. I've fought it. I've had to work on my spirit. And even to this day sometimes something will come up and, and I, I make myself check my spirit right then. And I pray, God, if, I, if bitterness is starting to come back, please get it out of me. I don't want that. I want to truly forgive because I know at some point between now and the time I meet Jesus face to face, I'm going to need His forgiveness again. I know that. And so I don't want to become bitter. I don't want to live my life upset at somebody else. Someone once said, bitterness in your heart is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die from it. Because that bitterness is in you. 
That poison is in you. You're not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. And I'm telling you, a bitter person is, is miserable to be around. I, I've, I've met people who were bitter over some situation. They felt like they'd been wronged. They were right. And the others were wrong. And they were going to hang on to that to their dying day. But what happens is it is a root. That's what the Bible calls it, a root. And you know what roots do? They spread. They go deeper. It never stops with just this one incident. But that bitterness starts affecting every aspect of your life. Now, having, having worked on that strongly, let me, let me give you another side to all of this. Because part of this process of prayer is, Oh Lord, forgive. We're asking for God's forgiveness. But, but let, me, let me tell you something. Sometimes the devil will use this against us to keep us from praying effectually. What I mean by that is he'll put some guilt on us so that we feel like we can't touch God. Now, now look, consider what the Bible calls him. Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. I'm telling you, that's what he does. Church, please understand. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. First of all, if you have truly repented and you still feel guilt, that's not conviction. That doesn't come from God. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me clarify this. Conviction comes from God. Condemnation comes from the devil. All right? Are we clear on that? Conviction comes from God. Condemnation comes from the devil. So let's understand these two terms. If you have really repented of something and you still feel guilty, that's condemnation. That's from the devil. If you have really repented of this, God's not going to keep convicting you of it. He promised to forgive. Secondly, I've known people who just lived under this cloud of guilt, condemnation, and they don't even know why. They have no idea why they feel the way they feel. 
Can I tell you? That's not conviction. That's condemnation. Listen to me, church. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How can you repent of something you don't even know what it is? Now, am I making sense? You, you can't repent of something you don't know you've done. So God's not going to put this guilt on you and not tell you what it is. If you're feeling guilt, pray. Ask God, Lord, is this from you? Have I done something that displeases you? If I have, show me. And God has a number of ways of showing you. Sometimes, you know, for example, you just got a bad attitude and you don't realize you got a bad attitude. I'll never forget talking to a man in my office and I, I just told him, I said, brother, you got a bad attitude. He said, I don't have a bad attitude. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> whatever. Um, Sometimes we don't see it in ourselves. So can I tell you, sometimes God uses others to show us where our fault is. Sometimes God will let somebody else say something to us that shows us, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Sometimes it comes through the preaching of the word. But I want to promise you this. If you're sincerely praying about this guilt you feel, God will show you if it's from God. And if God never shows you, it's the devil. Don't accept it. Rebuke it. And go on praising God. Thank God. Um, and, and along those lines, along those lines, you need to learn the difference. Remember, this is, this is geared, at least in part, for new converts. So for some of you, this is so simple. But, but you need to learn the difference between evil thoughts and sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the now, dividing. Now watch this. Piercing even to the dividing asunder. Asunder of soul and spirit. soul is, well, that's a hard thing to delineate. But the word of God can. And of the joints and marrow. And, and the marrow comes from the joints. But God can differentiate. And a discerner. Of the thoughts and, and intents. And the word of God is of a discerner. Now notice this. Of the thoughts and intents. intents of the heart. Do you see that there's a difference between a thought and an intention? And just because the thought comes in your mind does not mean you intend to do it. Look, the devil can come along and put thoughts in your mind 
And you're thinking, dear God, where did that come from? I don't think that way. What brought that to my mind? Don't think that just because something entered your mind, you've sinned. God can, di- can discern between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God knows if this is just a random thought making its way across your mind or if it's something you really want to do. Well, praise God. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted... When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, so you see, here's the thing. If it's the intent of the heart, it's going to lead you to action. It's going to, it's going to put this desire in you to do something about the thought. Let's, let's skip down 1 Peter 1.13. I'm, I'm trying to, because if, if I don't hurry, we're not even going to finish this, oh Lord, forgive today. We started it last week, and then we're, we're going to be on this one part of this all day today. And I'd like to move on, but I've got so much more I want to do. I'd like to at least finish the four parts. But let's, let's, let's skip down to 1 Peter 1.13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this whole term of girding up, it's, it's kind of foreign to our concept, uh, to our, our modern Western minds. But, but in Bible times in the Middle East, you know, they, they wore these long flowing robes. If they were going to have to run or they were going to go to war, the robe got in their way. And so they would reach in and grab the back of the robe from between their legs, pull it up, and tuck it into the front of their belt, and thereby turn that robe effectively into some pants. And then it it was easier to fight. It was easier to run when they had girded up their loins. And this is what the, the apostle Peter is telling us, that look, Your thoughts just kind of flow all over the place. But if you want to be successful in this spiritual warfare, you've got to learn how to tuck some things in. You've got to learn how to take control of some things. I think it was last week we talked about um, casting down imagination. Bringing every thought into obedience. Every thought. Every thought. we got to take control of our thoughts. I'm telling you, this world, dear God, I am so ready for the trumpet to sound. I was talking to Sister Andriana Hilton uh, the other night. Well, she's working 
in the uh, in one of the schools here in the area, and talking about a student that's been diagnosed with what what was it? They've got some. I don't I don't remember what they called it. I'd never heard this diagnosis before, but but basically what they were saying was um, they don't obey anybody. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't that there's some. It, it's it's like all of a sudden this has become a a, a, a mental condition that children are not obedient. I've got a prescription for that. And it doesn't cost anything. And you don't have to see the doctor for it. Now I know there are genuine mental situations. I understand but I'm just telling you, this world has gotten to the place they just excuse anything and everything. And if we're not careful, we'll play into that too. And listen to me. Listen to me. God is smart enough. He knew before the world began what disorders there were and what disorders there were not. He knew. And His Word doesn't make exceptions. People can disobey if they've got obedience, resistance, affliction, or whatever they call this crazy stuff. His word didn't make an exception. Well, you don't have to obey if you've got a mental problem. It didn't say that. Or everybody would suddenly have a mental problem. Well, Jesus, here's my stupid ticket. I'm not saying everybody with mental issues is stupid, but I'm just trying to be extreme in my discussion of what this world has just gotten crazy about this stuff. I'm going to tell you, we've just got some responsibility, and especially if we claim the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is stronger than anything that's going on in our lives. I'm just, I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe the Holy Ghost is stronger than hormones. Young teenage boys, hormones are raging and we tell them, control yourself, control yourself. Right? Somebody else says, well, I've got this hormone imbalance, so I, I, I don't have it. Try the Holy Ghost. I'm not trying to simplify everything, church. I hope that you understand what I'm saying. But I'm just saying we excuse way too much. And we don't give God nearly enough credit. He can help us. Well, I have anger issues. Um, what you have is a Holy Ghost issue. And look, the Bible does say be angry and sin not. So evidently, God expects you to keep your anger in check. 
well, all right, I got to get through. We're, we're talking about prayer today, aren't we? We're talking about prayer today, so. Um, another point you need to know, because we're talking about, oh, Lord, forgive. Let me give you another point here. You need to know the difference between repentance and unbelief. You need to know the difference between humility and self-pity. As I said, if you, if, if you just keep repenting over the same thing, there's unbelief. You don't believe God forgave you. And the devil will have you wallow in self-pity. He really will. He will get you feeling so sorry for yourself because of all of the things you've done wrong until he'll convince you there is no hope for you. That's not humility. Look, I, I, you know, I've, I've been teaching a Bible study to a couple for well over a year. And, and I was just this week going back over some things with them. And I said, that to me, this is one of the beauties of the Bible. You take a man like King David. If, if the Bible had been written just by a group of men, they would never have told the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah because they would have wanted David to look like this perfect hero. But the beauty of it is the Bible shows us that these are not perfect individuals. They're humans. And the reason the Bible shows us that is so that we can know God can use us too. And look, God can even take our failures and make successes out of them. Now, I'm not giving you a license to just go fail. But I did mention this to that couple. I said, I want you to think about something. Th this one sin blotted David's life to this day. But think about this. He took Bathsheba to be his wife. And when it came time for there to be another king in Israel, to take David's place. David had many wives. And that's another story for another day. I like to say the scripture is very clear about having just one wife. Because Jesus said no man can serve two masters. But David had many wives. And it could have been a son from any one of those wives that succeeded him on the throne. Any one of them would have been from the same tribe David was from. Any one of them would have carried on this same bloodline. But do you know who God chose? God chose Solomon. Do you know who Solomon's mother was? Bathsheba. Now the child that was conceived in the act of adultery died. 
But there was another son by Bathsheba. Do you see that God took David's worst failure and used it to further and advance his kingdom? Child of God, I am here to tell you today that it doesn't matter how far you fell. God can pick you up and make something powerful and beautiful out of your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Don't be consumed with self-pity. Job 38, verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Gird up your loins like a man. <laughs> that's strong language, but that's what, that's what God said to Job. Get up and face me, Job. We're going to have a talk. Don't get down there in the ground and feel sorry for yourself. You've done that long enough. Now get up and talk to me. Daniel chapter 10 verses 9 and 11. Listen to this. Yet heard I the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep, deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. There, Some of you are in the scripture. Did you see that? Some of you are right there. The Bible just called you by name. I, I, he said, I was in a deep sleep. <laughs> well, make sure your neighbor's awake, all right? All right, I'm sorry. Greed. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my set hands. Set me on my knees and the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, o Daniel a, man greatly a man beloved, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand, and stand upright, upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. I stood trembling. I'm telling you, church. The devil can convince you that your self-pity is humility. And there's a big difference. God wants us to come before him boldly. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Moses was the meekest man, is what the Bible says. He was the meekest man. And yet listen to what God says to Moses while Moses is in prayer. Deuteronomy 9.14. Let me alone. Let me alone. That I may destroy them and blot out their name for, from under heaven. And I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. Listen to what God said to the meekest man. Moses, you're standing in my way. You are stopping me from bringing judgment. Moses, let go of me. That's the meekest man. 
I'm telling you, God wants us to have some boldness in our prayer life. There is a power in prayer that most of us have yet to comprehend. I'm trying to go through these quickly. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15, verses 26 through 28. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And he said, Truth, Lord. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, o woman great, is thy, great faith. is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Do you, do you understand, church, the significance of what is taking place in this passage? Do you really comprehend? Jesus just stated, it's not time for me to help a Gentile. It's not right for me to take the children's food and give it to someone like you. He called her a dog. And made it clear it was not time and it was not right. But you know what she did? She didn't go running off. Feeling sorry for herself. She admitted it. You're right, Lord. I know. But you know, I do know this about dogs. They'll sit at the table hoping there's something that the people don't eat. And if there's something they don't eat, that dog will be happy to lick up the crumbs. She's saying, Lord, I'm not I'm not arguing with what you have called me. I, I'm, I'm exactly, Brother Self, I'm not looking for a seat at the table. All I know is this. You've got a lot of your children that are rejecting what you're handing out right now. I just want the crumbs. Just give me the crumbs of what they don't want. And I'm telling you, Jesus could not resist. It wasn't time and it wasn't right. But she got her answer. Now tell me again. Well, it's not the will of God that I get this. Well, it's not the will of God. Well, I'm not worthy. Tell me again how that works. When Jesus told this woman it's not time and it's not right. But she got it anyhow. I'm telling you, God wants us to come boldly before his throne. Not arrogantly, but boldly. She admitted, I'm a dog. I know that. See, what the devil wants you to do is say, well, Lord, I'm a dog, so I'm not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. I'm not... my, my old pastor... I'm telling you, if I heard him say it once, I heard him say it a dozen times. He said, God has armloads of gifts and no one to give them to. Do you understand 
even in the midst of apostolic churches, there are so few that are really seeing the glory of God and the miraculous power of God displayed. And God wants to do it now just like he always has. But you know what he's looking for? He's looking for somebody to quit feeling sorry for themselves. He's looking for somebody to say, Lord, I know I'm a dog. I know I'm not worthy, but I know this. There's a whole lot of others out there that you'd like to do it for that they don't want it. So I'm not asking you to give me something, Lord, that that would take away from them. I'm just saying, God, if there's some leftovers, would you pass them my way? (laughs) Would you hand them to me? I'm telling you, when when I was in Africa this last time, we would go eat somewhere. And, of course, most of you know I I can't eat. Generally, whatever I order, I can eat about half of it, maybe two-thirds max, and that's that's it. And so I always had leftovers. But usually there were others at the table that had leftovers. And I'd watch Brother Stewart every meal. He would pack up whatever leftovers were there. And he'd go find somebody. Sometimes it was the parking lot attendants. They'll have people there in those areas that'll just stand. They just watch in the cars, and, and to make sure nobody breaks in your car while you're eating in the restaurant. And and I watched him many times, Brother Hall, take those leftovers and give them to that parking lot attendant. And and it didn't even matter if somebody had bit into it. They didn't care. They were so hungry. They were willing to take it. Many nights he would go out of his way to go past. There was a bridge where he knew a homeless man lived and he would, he would intentionally just go by and he'd stop there and roll down his window and hand that food out to that homeless man. And, and he did that night after night. And I'm going to tell you, not one of them complained. Not one of them said, oh, I'm not worthy. No, 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 don't give it to me. I don't just, no, no. They were hungry. And it didn't matter to them. And I'm telling you what God wants in this hour is somebody hungry enough to say, God, it doesn't matter that I'm not worthy. That's, That's irrelevant. I just know there's a whole lot of crumbs out there that other people are not eating right now. And Lord, they don't need to go to waste. I'll take them. I'm hungry, God. I'll eat what they don't want. I'm still on the topic. I'm talking about prayer. I'm telling you, we got to change our approach to prayer. We got to quit being so mealy-mouthed about everything and and, and so afraid to talk to God about everything. We've got to go in boldly before the throne of grace. Hold our head up high. We're so afraid to ask the Lord for anything. We're so scared to talk to Him. I I don't have a whole lot of time. Um, but 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 I want to show you. I want to show you. I, I've I've talked about this before. But several years ago, as I was reading 
the story of Esther, something dawned on me. I'd, I'd always heard people talk about what a brave woman Esther was, how brave she was. And, and, and there was a degree of bravery there. I don't, I don't deny that. But, but I, I saw another side to this. Let's, let's read. In fact, open your Bible because we're going to read several verses from Esther. Esther chapter 4. And let's read verses 15 and 16. First of all, Esther 4 verses 15 and 16. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, now to give you the background, just in case someone's listening who doesn't know, the fact was a law had been passed, and the Jewish people were about to be annihilated. And, and, and Mordecai um, sent word to Esther. He had raised Esther uh, after her parents died. And, and, and she had become the queen of the most powerful kingdom on earth. Little Jewish girl. And, and Mordecai sent word to her. And said, you've got to go talk to the king about this because we're going to die. And, and she wrote back and said, well, I, I, I can't do that. He, you know, he hadn't even asked to see me in a month. Now, she's his wife. She said, he hasn't even asked to see me in a month. And she said, there is a law that if you just go walking in uninvited, yep. you're put to death. Now, he might have mercy and extend his royal scepter, but if he doesn't have mercy, then you die. Yep. She said, he hasn't, he hasn't even wanted to speak to me in a month now. Right. I can't just go in uninvited. And that's when Mordecai said, do you think you're going to escape? Have you forgotten you're also a Jew? And then he asked that famous question, who knows but what you're come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so that's when she writes back these words. She said, I tell you what, go get all the Jews together. We're all going on a three-day fast. Now, She's the queen. She's the queen. Right. She's not just a member of his harem. She is his lawful bride. But she is so scared to ask him that she wants everybody on a three-day fast. All right? And so they go through the fast, and she decides, okay, I can't wait any longer. I, I got to go in before the king. 
And she made her entrance into the throne room uninvited. This is the moment of truth. She can be put to death right now. But let's read what happens. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And it was so when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor. She obtained favor in his sight. In his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Yes. Then said the king unto her, What wilt then thou? Then said the king, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? Oh, now look. Notice what he called her. He reminded her, You're the queen. What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? What is your request? It shall be even given to thee the half of the kingdom. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Do you see? He was not angry that she came bursting into his throne room. Right. He wasn't the least bit frustrated about it. He didn't start off with, what do you think you're doing, woman? I'll give you half my kingdom. Now remember, she's there to plead for her life. But you know what she does? She does not plead for her life. Let's read. And Esther answered, If it seemed good unto the king, uh -huh. let the king and him, Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now, she just risked her life to make a request to the king. And her request is, would you come to supper tonight? Seriously? Esther, you really think, you really, I mean, is that the best you can, he's offered you half the kingdom. And what you ask is, come eat the meal that I fix you. Well, look, the king, the king wasn't duped by this. Because we keep reading verses 6 through 8. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of at wine. At the banquet. So they get to the meal and the king says to her. What is thy petition? All right, Esther. Then it shall be granted Look, thee. Are, are you seeing this the way I see it? All right, Esther. What's up? What do you want? And he tells her the second time in one day. It shall be granted. It shall be granted thee. What is thy request? What is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom. I'll give you half my kingdom. That's twice in one day. So what does she do? Plead for her life? Nope. Let's read on. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my petition. You know what? This is, this is, 
This is, this is what body language experts call distancing. Do you notice, here's the request, but before she can ever even get to any of this, well, if I found favor in your sight and, and, and if you want to grant my petition and, and, and if you want to grant my request, he just asked you, what do you want? You don't have to go through all this. Amen. But here's what she says. And to perform my request, let the king of Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. So the first time he says, what do you want? She says, I'm fixing supper. Come eat. So he goes to supper. He says, all right, Esther, what do you want? She said, well, 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 um, 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 um. If you really want to do what I want you to do, how about lunch tomorrow? <laughs> now, I know I'm revising this, but that's what your Bible says. Right. I'm telling you, this woman is afraid. And you would be too, and I would be too. I'm not trying to put her down. It did take courage to do what she did. But I'm telling you, there just wasn't enough confidence. It didn't take all of this. He was willing from the first time she appeared. But again, the king, king didn't fall for it. So we go over to chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. And the now, now, you know, what happens in between there, chapter, in, in chapter 6, this is, this is where Haman is so mad at Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow down. And Haman doesn't care that the whole kingdom's bowing down. There's this one Jew that, 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 that won't bow and, and just makes him so mad. You know, he hates, he hates Mordecai. That's why this law was passed in the first place. And so, so what happens here is um, the king has a very restless night. And, and he, he calls for the record books and he starts reading and he realizes that Mordecai had saved his life sometime before. And the king had never done anything for him. And, and so Haman, Haman is so mad at Mordecai that he goes running to the palace to meet the king to ask for Mordecai's life. And the king interrupts him. And the king says... Um, <clears throat> What should I do for somebody that I really want to honor? And Mordecai, being the narcissist that he was, he said, oh, yeah, I know what to do. Put the king's crown on his head and put him on the king's horse and let somebody that the people look up to lead this man around the city saying, thus shall the king do to the one that he wants to honor. And the king said, perfect, go 
get Mordecai and put my crown on him and put him on my horse. Don't you know that ate Haman's lunch? He's walking around town leading that horse with the man he hates the most, riding on the back with the king's crown. That's what happens in chapter 6. So chapter 7 now, we finally get to this last meal that Esther's preparing. And verse number 2. And the king said unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine. So the next day. What is thy petition, Queen Esther? He, he didn't fall for it. He knew she didn't risk her life to serve him some meals. Something was up. But he loved her so much, he was willing to go along with it, give her her space, until she could get up the gumption to really ask what she wanted. But he knew there was something more. And so he says to her, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Uh Uh-huh. And what is thy request? Right. And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. This is the third time in two days he said these exact words. Three times in two days. And finally, read. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight. Here she is. She's still scared to ask. And if it please the king, let my life be given me at my my petition and my people at my request. Yes. For we are sold. We're sold. I and my people to be destroyed. Be destroyed. To be slain. To be slain. And to perish. And to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. And so here, Esther finally, after three requests by the king, in two days, she finally tells the king what she wants. And of course, the king did everything he could do. He couldn't revoke the first law. It wasn't possible. But he added a new law that said, okay, yeah, if they want to try to go after the Jews, fine. But I'm giving the Jews the authority to defend themselves and to take ground for, uh, of their own. And boy, you know what? Esther kind of finally got some gumption about her. Because once he granted that, she went back to him. And she said, hey, king, how about another day of this? Didn't take three banquets this time. She learned The king loves you, Esther. You're the queen. You're the bride of the king. And whatever you want, he wants to give it to you. It makes him happy to make you happy. If only the people of God could get that kind of revelation. That the king, you are the bride of Christ. The king of all kings. And we're so scared and we're so afraid. And we're so worried to make our petitions known. And I'm telling you, he's sitting there saying to you... What is your request and what is your petition? 
In fact, he didn't just say, I'll give you half the kingdom. He said, it is your father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. He's not stopping with halfway. He said, whatever you want, whatever you want, ask and it shall be given unto you. Oh, Jesus. God desires to answer our prayer. God longs to give us what we ask for. It's his good pleasure. His good pleasure. In fact, this is not in the notes. And, and honey, you can come to the piano. I've got to close. I didn't make it beyond, oh, Lord, forgive. But, but anyhow, um, we'll get into the next one. Um, th- this is not in the notes, but, but, but over in the book of John, in, in the book of John, Jesus makes a statement that that is so important and 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 he said to his disciples he said hitherto have you asked me nothing he said ask that your joy may be full uh this is this is John chapter 16, and let's read verses 23 and 24. John 16, verses 23 and 24. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Look at this now. Now look, whatever you ask in my name, he's going to give it to you. Read. Hitherto have ye asked nothing. To this point. In my name. You haven't really asked anything. Ask. So I'm telling you, ask. And ye shall receive. And you shall receive why? That your joy may be full. He wants your joy to be full. God delights in making you happy. Yes, he does. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can you imagine? He told the disciples. To this point, you've not even asked me anything. This was on the night of his betrayal. This was after three and a half years. They've, they've seen the sick healed and the dead raised. And he said, to this point, boys, you really haven't even asked anything. I want you to really ask. Come on, ask. You're asking me for a banquet when I want to give you half the kingdom. That's what the Lord's saying right there. That's what he's trying to tell. And that's what he's trying to say to the truth church today. If we could ever reach this place in our prayer that we understand God wants to answer. God wants to help you. God wants to heal. God wants to provide. God wants to take care of you. God wants to show you direction. God wants to do what you're asking him to do. He desires to do it. Let's stand, lift our hands to the Lord. 
Hallelujah. Come on, let's talk to the Lord, everybody. Let's talk to the Lord, everybody.